Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Foresight's Existential Hope podcast, where we try to get uh, really wonderful scientists, thinkers uh, that are extremely optimistic or at least like differentially optimistic about the long term future on uh, to kind of tell us why uh, and what they're working on uh, to make uh, great futures more likely. And I think there's hardly anyone better to have on this podcast than Kevin Kelly. Um, I think Kevin has been, you know, almost like a kind of like an artifact of uh, kind of like positive future thinking uh, and has been for uh, quite some time, really. Actually, I think, and I may be wrong on this, and I tried to uh, find this photo back, but I couldn't. I think I saw you on very, very early foresight gatherings as well. Maybe mm -hmm. with Stuart Brandt and a few other folks too. And one of the early parts when I was still in London and looking through the foresight archives, and I think I saw your face. Uh, anyway, you are the founding executive director of Wired. Uh, and you are a, a really like an editor publisher of the whole Earth Review, which many people in the Fonsa community really, really loved. Uh, you take absolutely incredible photos and uh, recently published like a wonderful photo series on Asia. Um, you are here because you are extremely optimistic uh, about the future. You've given a TEDx talk on this, but you also have published a recent excellent book uh, that, uh, or like it's coming out in May, I think, right? Or like, um, and uh, it's it's really about like kind of like optimistic advice for like individuals uh, and it's all in tweet form. So really excited to get into that as well. You've done so many more other things, including a Future of X video series. You have a wonderful blog, The Technicum. Uh, you wrote a few wonderful blog, uh, books before that, such as The Inevitable. Um, and yeah, I think I'm just super, super excited to be here. Fun fact on the site, we founded the whole Burning Man camp on the notion of prototopia. We call it <laughs> prototopia, not protopia, because we came up with a, a term independently and then we Googled it and obviously... Uh, you had already originated the term. So thanks a lot for joining us. Really, really, really excited. I know I said a bunch of different words already, but maybe to kick us off, you could start by telling us what you're working on and perhaps also like your life story in a few minutes of like, how did you become the person that you are right now? Mm. Big question. Yeah, yeah. So many questions. Thank you. Um, again, I appreciate everybody's attention here. I know our attention is our one scarcity and um, thank you for taking some time. I hope I can be useful. To you. Um, so my um, my qualifications, yeah, I am off the chart optimistic, and I am uh, actually becoming more optimistic as the, as the years go by. I'm more optimistic than I was uh, even 10 or 15 years ago. My optimism is partly temperamental, but I actually de deliberately am engineering my optimism, and, and I'm, I'm becoming more optimistic on purpose. And so, um, so that's... So, 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 and actually, I realized recently that the old, the old division of kind of like um, liberal and conservative Democrat doesn't really interest me. It doesn't work anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm much more interested in the kind of fundamental framework of those who are problem oriented, who see the world as full of problems, and that's the perspective they see in the world. Whereas I think I see the world in terms of opportunities. My framing is always opportunities. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's some people who are like, yeah, the world's screwed up. There's so many problems and I'm going to, we're going to try and fix them. And for me, it's like, no, the world's full of all these opportunities and we go on to exploit them. And so um, there are problems, but I don't want to focus on the problems. I want to focus on the opportunities. So anyway, that's where I am. And um, besides having this little book, which I is, my promote what I'm doing right now. The honest answer is I'm doing promotion for the book, but 
The other project that I'm working on that may be of interest is I'm working on what I call uh, the 100-year desirable future. So it's a set of scenarios about a future in 100 years from now that's full of high tech, you know, ubiquitous AI, genetic engineering and stuff. And it, but it's the future that I want to live in. I'm, I'm trying to imagine a world that has all this stuff that most people are kind of crazily afraid of. And I want to make a world version and to imagine a world that, that I would want to live in. And then to have it with 10-year increments, about the 10 years, the kind of iterative way we get there. And so um, it's not a prediction. I'm not suggesting that this is inevitable at, in any way. But this, I think, is is my attempt to counter the general, very dystopian views of the future that most people have, particularly for, for story, <clears throat> excuse me, for storytelling. And so the purpose of this little scenario is actually to have a world to write to write stories in because the world itself is <clears throat> going to be boring. Yeah, I love that. We just uh, do. You, have you heard of the AI world building that Future of Life Institute did last year? Um, they solicited. No, I, was that with? Uh, no, I, I didn't know about that. Tell me about it. So it's a really, really wonderful, um, uh, wonderful project. I was uh, one of the judges of the scenarios, which is probably also why I'm biased. But uh, but basically, they solicited. Uh, they solicited. Uh, just an AI world builds in 2040 with a bunch of different timelines, almost like prediction market level timelines. Um, and those were distinctively positive worlds, not utopias, but positive worlds, um, kind of like layered by AI, but like with a bunch of other technologies in there too. They had people write two stories, um, uh, like uh, two stories of a life, create personas and so forth. Um, and I think they're pretty serious about like, uh, you know, doing a bit more scenario planning. We just had our existential hope day in which we basically group people according to like uh, individual uh, technological, like let's say expertise domains and had them create existential hope scenarios uh, with specific timelines also there. So I think it's a really, really wonderful thing to do. And my question for you is, are you creating one specific um, scenario or are you creating several specific scenarios so that we can like, you know, create different, like more robust uh, strategies that get us maybe to, to one of them or something. Is it one or is it several? Right now I'm just working. Um, I'm doing the um, wrong thing you do with scenarios. The scenarios should always be in multiples and I'm only writing one um, because uh, and that's how I'm starting because I'm, I'm mostly it's, it's um, right now it's not a kind of a group project. I think if I get to the point where I, I feel more um, comfortable about what it actually is, then I may have more people involved. And at that point, it makes sense to have multiple variations. But the you know the one thing we we always were taught and learned and practiced in doing scenarios was that they, you know, you you wanted to have the whole point of scenarios was to kind of map the possibility space and not to focus on one. But this is a little bit closer to uh, a work of art than it is, um, you know, it's closer to kind of like, uh, yeah, and it's not quite a narrative, but there's there's a narrative aspect because there's only a single scenario. So um, um, that's, you know, right now it's just me, my assistant, and a researcher. Um, I, one of the things I did was I we researched all the official futures. So the official futures is what we call the, you know, kind of standard industry futures, the future of, um, you know, I don't know, sports stadiums or whatever it is. We went through, we tried to find any long-term 
any any industry that had a long term meaning long term means like more than two years long term uh, future forecast, and we try to get them gather them together just to see what the official future is. They're always wrong, but it's a good place to start. And so, um, so uh, you know, and there and there's almost none of them that take anything beyond. 10 years so so 100 years is just outside the possibility space entirely but um that's sort of one of the places i was beginning was um starting doing these kind of vertical things like you know what's what do people expect it's not what's going to happen but it gives us a place to start i love it Uh, yeah please do let us know when the project's up and running and when there's anything to read or share i would uh yeah i'm sure that many folks in our community would be dying to get their hands on uh, on that stuff um very cool so i i mean you've been uh, around for a while and have i think seen like many different technological like you know shifts and like opportunities uh and then also like let's say christine peterson made this great point on a panel the other day of just like um, technologies are coming, but sometimes not quite as fast as uh, we thought, at least in the early foresight community. Yeah. And so I'm super curious, you know, like for, you know, for you in, in your own perspective, like what, what were like some major culture shifts, you know, that you've been like uh, through in terms of like long-term optimistic uh, future thinking, you know, like I'm sure that you've seen some ups and downs, some S-curves, like kind of like pedaling out, um, sure, you know, sure. were there any like major things that influence the way that you think about the long-term future in these hundred years? You know, um, so yeah, so I, I've been around kind of a couple cycles of high expectations and maybe disappointment. Um, I was, Jaron Lanier actually showed me his VR back in 1988, 89. And I really was blown away. And I thought, oh, in the next five years, this is going to be transformative. That the, the VR was just going to sweep the world and now it's 30 years later and the quality of the vr is actually not that much better it's a million times cheaper but it's actually not that much different than what we experienced and so i was wrong about that and um that goes back to you know the observation that um the famous quote that we shouldn't confuse a clear view of the future with a short distance right so it's we can kind of clearly see where it's going, but that doesn't mean it's going to take a short time. It can take a long time. So um, uh, th- that's a specific thing. And I think right now, you know, we, we, we've been through several generations of AI and we're now in a current moment when it seems like there's a little quantum leap in what things have happened. But I still think that, you know, we're really far from even starting in, 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 in that this is still day one in, in that respect. And so, um, in terms of what I've learned about that. So yeah, one thing is, is that we kind of overestimate what happens in the short terms and underestimate the effects in the long term. So what are some of the effects of, 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 you know, say 20 years or 30 years of being online? Um, I think, you know, I try to convey to my kids the incredible poverty of information that I had growing up. How how it's really hard to just imagine how impossible it was to find out about things, to 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 get some information if you were interested in something or to learn about it. 
it was so, 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 so difficult. And that was part of the genius of the whole Earth catalog because it's the first little portal in which you could find out some of this knowledge that was known, but just not wide, just not accessible. And that was the subtitle was access to tools. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I think this, the, 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 the state that we're in right now where we assume as a default that we can just reach up and get information that we need check, uh, to read anything, to read the bio, take a person here. I can read about you. I can find out uh, anything I want. That, that, that has accelerated learning and accelerated our own transformation to a degree that we don't appreciate. I mean, because it's sort of like the default, it's almost invisible. But I think that the, the change is just, uh, it's hard to even measure it because anything we want to do from being an activist to trying to invent something, to start something, to learn, to change your mind, to, to find out is now a, I don't know, at least a million times easier. And so yeah. um, that has really, really moved our culture and it's accelerating everything. So, um, you know, again, I, 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 I'm a total YouTube fanatic and I can talk about YouTube and I think YouTube is highly underappreciated in terms of the accelerant that it's working on the culture and the ways that it's not just makeup tutorials or people in the workshops as brain surgeons who are recording their, their operations and they have a little innovation they do and within days someone else is taking that and done it. The other brain surgeon is using it and they're improving it. And it's, it's just accelerating everything. And that I think is one of the fundamental things that we don't really haven't really reckoned or what's the word I want to uh, acknowledged. And uh, um, I think that's been the big change in the culture. Yeah, I agree. I think it would be nice to perhaps like, uh, find a way to make people aware how hard it was to find something out. I remember like when I was driving from Hamburg to Amsterdam, um, I already had Google Maps in my mom. My dad literally wanted to give me like a physical map and mapped in like where did you get off the, the, even just that type of thinking, you know, like asking around where you'd have to go to the next city, like in a pub or something. Um, even just that is like just incredibly uh, much, much easier now. But, um, yeah, like I think to the YouTube point also, like I totally second that. Like we have uh, lots of technical seminars too at Foresight, like on like biotech, uh, neurotech, and so forth. And I often get these like emails of just someone that basically said like this is so much more valuable than most of the stuff that I learned in my university because it's just people talking about like how hard it is to build a company in this space or like you know a new specific research area that they're uh, kind of like exploring that may not be right in the academic setting. And I think this kind of like gradual kind of like. Um, undercurrent of education that you get through YouTube, which is very tailored to exactly what you want. There's probably a YouTuber out there that gives it to you. Uh, is, is I think really uh, is, it's very very special. So, so 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 the the obvious question to ask ourselves is okay if that's been what's changed in the past twenty years because of communication technologies, how will it change in the next twenty years? Right, we're you know, what, what kinds of things might we expect in the next 20 years, just, just 20 years alone? Well, I mean, um, I, and I think one of the things that's happening right now with the AI that I find very, very exciting is, you know, the, 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 the our kind of moment right now of realizing that, you know, the AIs can make stuff up. Um, and how do we trust them? I think is a very, very profound 
disturbance in the force because um, it's going to require us to sort of um, up our game and develop new tools of deciding how we decide something's true or not. And I don't just mean news. I mean, even things like say within science, I mean, I mean, just generally, how do we ascertain what we can trust and not trust what's truthful and what's not? How do we decide that something's actually true? What kind of a consensus do we need? Is it just consensus? Is it beyond that? And so right now, we kind of do it in an intuitive way. We have experts and we have things like that. But that is going to become much more, I guess, mechanical, much more much, much more um, embedded. And to do that, we kind of have to know a lot more about how it is that we decide and accept that something is true or not. And um, so, so it's like, you know, or, yeah, you need to have a source cited. Okay, well, then that source have other sources. And how many sources down do we need to go before we're kind of accepting that? And how much of a consensus is needed? So anyway, I think that we're moving into this, you know, epistemological frontier where because we have AIs involved and not humans, if humans do it, we kind of accept things. But the AIs, for them, for us to accept it, we need a lot more precision, a lot more fundamental apparatus to make it happen. And I think this is going to be a very messy journey for the time being, which is, to me, very exciting because there's an opportunity to actually develop and increase our ability to learn by developing these questions about how do we get to something truthful faster? How do we get that consensus fast? If that's what's required, and I don't know what it is. So anyway, I think that the kind of the, this little the little glitches of the, of of doubt that come up from the AI chatbots about whether we can trust things or not is not a problem. It's an opportunity. So, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like, look, when you just said about the fact that how much information is now available on the internet, I yeah. think the next iteration is what Sam Altman pointed out also about ChatGPT. He was literally saying, I don't even need to read anything anymore. I can have ChatGPT read it and just like give me a summary of it. And, you know, that that has good and bad uh, and, and bad consequences. But for sure, like, you know, I, I recently, there's this thing in human ethics called the reflective equilibrium, where basically you take your intuitions to a bunch of situations, you construct heuristics for them. Uh, and then you can update your intuitions or your principles based on whether they still apply to new situations that you encounter or other objections. Um, for me, I did that on the trolley dilemmas in like an ethics undergrad. It took me like, I don't know, a whole year, like 120 trolley dilemmas or something. And I just did the entire reflective equilibrium across trolley dilemmas using chat GPT. It spat me out every single other trolley dilemma I hadn't considered yet. What other philosophers thought about the trolley dilemmas, different biases I could be prone to when reasoning about these moral cases. It literally gave me what I like took a year or something in undergrad ethics to dive through papers to. It just gave me all of the exact same references on a silver plate. And I was like, this is crazy. It's not just for epistemic updating, but even for moral updating, like, like for updating your values for like, you know, I, I don't know. I thought it was really incredible. This kind of like, um, like, yeah, in, in, in conversation to really be able to like make use of all the um, massive amounts of data that they can process and like just hand you on a silver plate. Some of that obviously may not always be truthful, but I think, you know, there you can just do your due diligence, but I'm super curious. Like, how do you see this kind of human AI? evolution like you know kind of like 
uh, in the next five to 10 years? Uh, do you see these human AI symbiotes or like, you know, um, um, humans assisted by the AIs, you know, then co collaborating with each other? Are you more worried about like more of a single takeoff? Like what's your general kind of like, um, what's your general path here? If, if you have an idea, if you have an, uh, an yeah, I, so. I, um, I, I think the general, um, the general, framework but my, my my overall framework is that there will be it's not a singular thing there's not a single ai it's there will be hundreds if not thousands of different species of ais with all different kind of mixtures of different uh complexes of different ways of thinking and they're all will be aliens so so for me it's they're artificial aliens so they can range in their capabilities from something like only pet like or animal like that are really good at certain um, things. And then there are ones that are very highly complex and very, very sophisticated, but they will always be a little different than us. And that's the whole point. It's like Spock and Kirk, right? So Spock, he's intelligent, conscious, whatever, but he's a little different. And that's the value. That's why we're going to make these things is because they aren't exactly like us. They think a little differently. And so, um, And so that's so. So for me, it's it's the kind of centaur symbiote, the the team um, in general. That's the general stance, and the the idea of them taking over and stuff, I totally reject. That's a, in my view, a religious mythological misunderstanding, um, and I've written about that. Why I think it's a kind of um, why it's a myth, the singularity. Um, paperclip stuff all that all that is just a misunderstanding of our own what, what intelligence is as far as we know so um so yeah so so the immediate in the immediate while i think the long range thing is this kind of having a whole network of thousands of different species of ais many of them we're going to invent in order to solve problems that we our own minds cannot solve alone but together we can solve more and in some ways, the more varieties of minds you have, the more things you can do. And um, the idea of a general intelligence is also, for me, a completely misguided idea. I don't think there is such a thing as general intelligence. I think there's a possibility space and that actually human-like intelligence is way off on the edge. So like on the galaxy, we're not at the center of anything. We're not general anything. We're a very, very specific kind of intelligence that was evolved on this planet to solve certain problems. And once we meet other kinds of intelligences, we'll realize that it's like having a general tool or a general machine. We don't make a general machine to do things. We make very specific machines to do things. And ones that are tailored to something in particular are always better than, than the other things. We have an iPhone that does lots of things really good, but a specific camera is still better than the camera on your iPhone. And, you know, so... We, we accept that little trade-off of having the Swiss Army knife version of things, but it doesn't mean that the, that the iPhone is superior to all machines. It's, it's not. There's, it's, machines have to be very – there's always a trade-off. There's an engineering trade-off, which is you cannot optimize everything. That's just the engineering – that's the kind of second law of thermodynamics and engineering is like you cannot optimize all qualities. You always have to have a trade-off. And that includes intelligences and smartness and stuff. There's going to be a trade-off. If you emphasize something, something else has to be um, paid in a certain sense. So my general view for the immediate future is that 
these chats and the neural nets and the um, large language models are going to take the stance of of interns. Basically, what we're getting is we're everybody's getting a personal intern, the universal intern. So for the first time, you have an intern, and you want to you know you're going to want to check the intern's work. You're not going to release the intern's work on as your own. The intern is going to help you write your lyrics or. Uh, write code for you as the first draft or do your thing or make a summary and whatever it is. And we're going to have the intern, the universal intern helping us do whatever we want to do. And that's huge. So millions and millions of people will have millions and millions of interns at their side, helping them do work. And that's, that's a, you know, that's a huge step forward. So that's my excitement of the current thing right now. Yeah. Brief uh, intersection from the chat. Uh, David pointed out that uh, computers are general. They can run, um, they can run any program, and it shows that there are places where generality is default or is optimal. And we even where David George uh, are on here earlier, and um, you know he's obviously like advancing the concept of a universal constructor. Even so, even like on the like physical right, right, tool right. level, uh, is trying to build like a universal constructor. Yes. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this. Then yeah. I have one more question, and then I hand it over to Beatrice to also get started talking about your book right. so far. But so, this is too interesting to let it go. One of the fundamental theorems of computer science is the equivalency of the Turing church hypothesis, which says that basically any computer can emulate any other computer given infinite time and space. And that's the difference, is that real computers don't have infinite storage, don't have infinite time. They have to operate in real time. And when you so in theory, there is an equivalency, but in actual practice, when you have to run something on a substrate, the substrate matters. It matters what the computer is running on. And yes, you can emulate things with enough CPUs and logic gates and time, but the difference between the simulations are is, is that you have to um, you have to have a simulation. You have to cheat somewhere and make it. You have to uh, re- re- eliminate things in order to to, to emulate it, or um, it's going to be slower. And so, and that slowness makes a difference in real life because we we operate in real in real time. And so the the theoretical is that any computer can emulate anything else given enough time and space. But in real practice, the substrate that uh, that intelligence is running on is going to make a difference about what it how it works and how it thinks and the ideas that it comes up with. Yes, you can emulate it over time slower, but that's not what we we operate in real time. So so what that means is that if you want to have a computer that really, really thinks like a human, you're going to gradually move to having to run on wet, wetware, right? And so um, we can do that, but we, it's so much easier to make a human in nine months without untrained, without trained labor that, that there's really no reason to kind of make human-like intelligence it's much more useful to us to make intelligences that are not like us. And that's what we're going to do. And that's much easier because it's running on different, it's running on different hardware. And so, um, so yes, so the equivalency church term is true, but it's not that practical. Thanks. Um, there is uh, to your notion of like, you know, um, kind of collaborating with these alien intelligence in like a, you know, mutually beneficial way. Uh, there was a recent interesting lesbos on cyborgism, basically like taking the 
uh, bits in which they are not human aligned, but in which they're different than humans, actually almost as their comparative advantage uh, and trying to see what we can learn from that. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and I really loved your like, you know, the AI, uh, human kind of like, you know, kind of like pairs, uh, in, in collaboration in the larger economy. I think, you know, it, it, um, uh, echoes a little bit like with something that Eric Drexler wrote a little while ago on comprehensive AI services, where he was basically comparing AI more as like, kind of like the economy uh, getting better at producing very specialized services uh, yes. that we can then uh, use uh, as humans and like uh, and, and and increase our own kind of like capabilities with um, yes. and being cooperation with in like a, a pretty like kind of like hypercharged yes. economy almost. So, uh, but in those scenarios, you know, you even have like problems like deception, you know, for example, like AI deception for humans um, uh, and maybe even problems like collusion uh, and so forth. And I wonder if, you know, if you, if, if you're worried about that at all, um, I think you already said you're a bit worried about the deception piece. Um, but yeah, th th that would be my last question on this. Like even in this, you know, more decentralized world in which uh, it just kind of like continues evolving uh, the way it does, but now just much more kind of like enhanced by these intelligences, you may have some game theoretic problems that we just haven't evolved to pass because we're good spotting lies in individual humans, but not so good uh, in artificial <laughs> aliens yet. Right. Well, so, so one thing is, is I'm not worried about very much and I don't worry because that's focused on problems. For me, it's all opportunities. So, so this whole thing is an opportunity to increase our our understanding of truth and um, and how we know things. So, um, the other thing about it, the service, which is also true, I think the bulk of AI is going to be served as a utility service. You're just gonna you're not going to generate it yourself. There'll be some where you might have you might own the the thing that's making AI, but most AI is going to be sent to you, delivered to you. Like, like electricity, you'll just buy as much AI as you want and you'll consume it. Like, you know, in the same way that most of us are not generating our own electricity, we might have a backup one or we may have solar panels on our house and we're kind of contributing it. But um, by and large, electricity is a commodity and a utility and AI is going to be in, in much the same way for, for most of it, for say 90% of it. And it'll also be invisible. Most of the AI we're not even going to see. It's going to be in the back office doing stuff, and it's going to be successful because the mark of a successful technology is it disappears from our consciousness. We're not aware of it. So behind the walls in my house are the plumbing and the electrical stuff and all that really good infrastructure stuff that I'm not even aware of, and, and I don't want to be aware of it. And a lot of the AI is going to be the same thing. It's just going to be operating in the background, and we're not going to think about it. We're not going to interface with it. And that's where the bulk of it is going to be done as a service, as a utility. Wonderful. Uh, we'll leave it at that. And I'm excited to hand over to Beatrice to talk a bit more about existential hope, uh, kind of like, you know, like the long-term scenario bits, um, hopefully discuss a little bit and uh, like the very practical advice you give in your book. Uh, and yeah, thank you so, so much. This was quite the wild ride already. <laughs> Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it was uh, quite the wild ride already. It was definitely um a great sort of taste already of like I I feel like I got the answer you're very optimistic about the future, which is usually what I ask um people. Um yeah, I think I came across you first when I read your book The Inevitable mm -hmm. uh, about like these technologies that you sort of believe are inevitable that these technologies will arrive and they will really shape our world as it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also at the future forum last year, uh, you had this debate with Anders uh, Sandberg about like technology being deterministic. Mm -hmm. And I think you were arguing that 
uh, you think technology is like deterministic. Do you, do you want to just briefly like uh, pitch this uh, to this group? Make the case. Um, yeah. So, so I, one of the things I would say about it I, I, is that I'm a, I'm, I'm a reluctant technological determinist in the sense that I didn't start off there and I'm not really that happy that I am, but I am that. And, 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 and so I've become convinced that um, there is a general developmental sequence of technologies that are mostly governed by just the physical nature of things. So the, 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 and, and, and by the way, because I see technology as extension of the same self-organizing force that runs through life and evolution, that basically it's an accelerated version of evolution. I also see, I also in very, in, in a much smaller camp in, in the biological evolution, thinking that there's directions in evolution itself, biological evolution. So that's, that's not the Stephen Jay Gould version of if you replay the tape of life that he said you get everything completely different. And I'm from, no, no, no. You actually, if you replace the tape of life on the same kind of general conditions, you would get some of the basic forms would be the same. So, you know, the solution of a quadruped on a planet of our size and gravity, you're going to have quadrupeds again and again. You will never have a zebra if you rewind it. Species are completely inherent and unpredictable, but the but larger forms of them, the basic blueprint of a quadruped is going to repeat because that's just a physical solution. And so I think there's a lots of similar things in technology that are, you know, like once you have discovered electrical currents and signal capacity, you're going to make telephones on any planet anywhere under any political regime throughout the galaxies that's going to be a common pattern and there'll be the sequence of things that are discovered because so my argument is one if you study science the idea of simultaneous independent invention is the norm there isn't the things that we come up with are not dependent on some heroic genius they're, they're networked ideas, and they're coming about because all the other ideas next to it have been done, and that's the next logical thing. And so, you know, famously, Alexander Graham Bell patented, two people patented the telephone on the same day. Alicia Gray would have been the inventor of the telephone had he been there a few hours earlier. And so these things these inventions are are networked system assisted inventions and so they have a sequence there is a there is a sense in which the larger forms are inevitable if all the other parts are already there that's just they're going to fall out as you know with our own kind of entrepreneurial interests and they're not dependent on a Steve Jobs or a Thomas Edison Thomas Edison was the 23rd person to make an incandescent light bulb. He was not the first. He was the 23rd person. But he figured out how to make the business side of it work. He figured out how to market it. He figured out how to make it durable and last a long time. But he was not the inventor of the light bulb. And so there are a lot of, a lot of people working on it at the same time. And, and that's the norm. So that's one of the arguments for um, the terminus. And there are others, but... Um, I don't want to get, you know, uh, this is not a seminar on that. <laughs> no, no, but that's great. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like that's, it's an, ex, 
it's an interesting experience right now. I feel like with just everyone talking about AI and not just people in like this sort of bubble where everyone is like thinking about technology and all of that, but it's really starting to trickle down. Um, and yeah, showing up in like, uh, all these little places in, in our everyday lives. Um, it, it does remind me so much of the internet beginning because, because, um, you know, I was online, I've been online every day since 1982. And uh, for 10 years, I was living online before the web came up and when Wired was starting. And it was a very, it was a very small number of people who thought that this was ever going to be mainstream. I mean, they really felt that it was, it was, so it was a teenage boy phenomena being online. And, and many, many very smart people said, that, you know, the average person is never going to go online. The average person will never buy anything online, ever. And it was a very fringe thing. And then obviously it became the mainstream. And the same with AI. There has been this feeling that it was not for me, very esoteric, something that, you know, people in California and the Silicon Valley might be interested in, but not really something that um, they would ever use. And I think that we're at this moment, like it feels like 1992, three or something when people when the web came and then people oh i get it i think you can this and, and this is this kind of a moment right now where it's moving into the mainstream and it seems very sudden even though you know neural nets have been around for a generation um but now they actually kind of they, they have their web moment the web was visual and so it was no longer command code, and that was all the difference. It made it accessible. And now this language interface is making it accessible so people don't have to deal with it. They can just talk to it, and that's so natural. So, th- so now we're having this moment where people are kind of realizing that, um, uh, yeah, it's here, even though it's not here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think your uh, analogy of sort of thinking of the AIs as an intern was was kind of good. I, and I'm definitely like trying to, um, you know, there's this transition f- period, I guess, where like you'll have a really big advantage if you're good at making yeah. use of these tools. And like, that's what I'm trying to like recommend my siblings that are like 15 and 18, like, um, yeah, like use ChatGPT. Um, but that leads us to like this uh, life advice book that you've just written. Mm. Um yeah, do you want to share like how what's the story? How did you come to write that book? Yeah, so so um I w- when I'm trying to change my behavior, I find that I like to have a little mantra, a little uh something to repeat to myself to help me to remind myself. And so I like to collect I would like to I like to collect quotes that were practical that would remind me and then I I started to find that I had I would like to take a whole book of, of 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 advice and kind of reduce it down to a little 140 character thing that I could use to repeat to myself to to remind myself. So like an example would be um uh, this was a great piece of advice I heard long ago when I was at Whole Earth and I've made I made it mine, which is if I get an invitation to to do something, um whether it's talk or whatever it is, um ask myself, would I do this if it was tomorrow? Because it's very easy to kind of say yes to something six months out. But it's like, no, no. Would I do this if it was tomorrow? And that, so so I kind of, you know, that's, I wanted to reduce that. And to that, I use that all the time when I get an invitation. It's like, hmm, that's inter- that sounds interesting. Would I do this if it was tomorrow? Would I say if it was tomorrow? And that's the kind of filter. So another example would be, um, 
if I know I have something in my household and I, and I can't find it and I finally do find it, the little piece of advice is um, when I'm done with it, don't put it back where I got it, but put it back where I first looked for it. Okay, so I repeat that myself all the time. It's like when I find this thing, oh, I have my, I was looking for my flashlight and here it is. Okay, I'm going to put it back where I first looked for it. Okay, because that's where I'm going to look for it again. And so um, those are the kinds of, of practical things that, that I got into the habit of. And so I decided that there were some of them I wish I had known long ago. I mean, I really wish I'd known about um, the fact that um, the most valuable thing we have is our time. Therefore, the greatest leverage we have is in hiring other people's time to get something done, basically to outsource things. I wish I'd known that when I was 20 because I was kind of a whole earth do-it-yourselfer and I really felt that I needed to do things myself. Like I didn't want to start a tech company because I couldn't program. It kind of never occurred to me, well, you just hire programmers. It's like you don't have to do everything. You can outsource because my most valuable time, uh, my most valuable asset is my time. Your most valuable asset is your time. If I can buy, if I can get some of your time, that's a high leverage. And so um, this idea now, I'm totally like, yeah, I, I use, um, we use Upwork and all the time of just anything we're doing. It's like, can we specify that so we can outsource it? Because if I have to do it, that's, that's no good. I want, to, uh, I want to leverage my time. So taking some of these ideas and reducing them to a little bit of advice is often things I wish I knew when I was younger. And I decided that I wanted to give them to my kids and I started writing them down. And my, my assignment was to make them as short as possible, like almost like a tweet, something that could be tweeted to a friend. And um, I posted some of them on my birthday one year. They were very, they went kind of uh, ricocheted and viral. And so I kept going until I had a whole book for all my kids of um, 450 little things that, I think would be useful and practical and things I wish I'd known when I was younger. So, I mean, we can open up almost anywhere. They're kind of like, they're just little tweets. Uh, you know, it says, um, your best response to an insult is you're probably right. And often they are. Okay. So you just kind of say, oh, you're, you're probably right. Um, uh, you know, most overnight successes, in fact, any significant success, takes at least five years to budget your life accordingly. So, so I actually, if you, from beginning, when you first have the idea to when you're done, most really good projects or ideas will take five years. And you kind of like, you know, you, have, you only have so many of those in your life. So a really good project from the moment you begin to the moment you let go and everything about again is going to be a five-year thing. Um, so anyway, um, there's lots of things like this. Um, the hard part of predicting the future is to forget everything you expect it to be. That's a bit of advice I learned is, is the hardest thing in thinking about things is, is our expectations because it's going to be surprising. And, and, and it's really hard in doing scenario workshops to get people to, to forget what they think the future is going to be. Anyway, I go on. There's 450 of them. <laughs> Well, how do you go about it then? If you have, if you just um, found this favorite uh, advice in your book yeah. and you wanted to like really implement it into your life, do you just like 
uh, write a sticky note and keep it with you, or you? No, I I I, I try to to make it into these little aphorisms and proverbs that I can remember when, when I need to. So it's like um, if I'm working on something, okay. So like for me as a writer, there's lots of advice that I just repeat to myself. That well, first of all, that you want to separate the writer from the editor. You can't write and edit at the same time. When you're writing, you have to not be judgmental, not have the editor. Don't let the editor anywhere near your writing as you're writing the first draft. You just want to separate those functions, including when you're painting. When I, I do a piece of art every day, um, I don't want to have the the editor, gallerist, judge over my shoulder while I'm creating. After, once you're done that, then you go back and say, does that any good? No, I got to change this. This is terrible. This sucks. Whatever it is, I'm going to change this part. And then you bring the judge in and then you go through another cycle again and again, but you have to separate those. You can't, if you have the editor looking over your shoulder while you're writing, the editor's going to not let you get very far. And so that, um, so, so when I'm sitting down to write, I, I, I have to remind myself not to let the editor near the first version of the first draft. I'm just going to just write, I'm going to write stupid, crummy, terrible stuff. And that's the process. So for me, the handle, these look, reducing them to little tiny tweets was the handle that I needed to bring them forward at the, when they were needed. Yeah, I, I skimmed, I skimmed through, um, like a few of the advice and it was, it was really, really a wonderful book. Um, so I can definitely recommend it. I see people in the chat already saying they're going to order it also. Um, so I think one thing that, um, I wanted to ask you also, because you already sort of said that you always sort of frame everything from a pot, uh, opportunities framework. Um, and I, I guess, like, have you always been this this way, or did you ever have a, a particular experience that made you like so excited and hopeful about the future? Well, as I said in the beginning, I think I, I'm, I have a natural uh, sunny temperament, but I would not have described myself in terms of optimism before. I think optimism. I, I have a learned optimism. Let me put it that way. I actually. Um, I, I learned to be more optimistic than I even am naturally. And I, and I've learned it because I feel that, and the evidence seems to me is that I'm a better person when I'm optimistic. And I believe that I'm more useful when I'm optimistic. And I believe that um, in some ways I'm, that's my, that's my job in life as well is. And so, um, so I have, and so I've become deliberately more optimistic um, even though I am naturally, you know, naturally sunny in, in terms of my view. So, so there's a great book called Humankind that I think more people should read. And I forget the name of the author. It might have been his first book. of Degman, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. And his premise was that the default for human behavior is actually altruistic and, and selflessness. That the kindness is actually the default and that he has evidence that even in times of crisis and disasters, when we think people would be very selfish, that given all things being equal, that people tend to be much more altruistic, much more selfless, much more um, kind than, than not. And that the times when people are, are deeply um, selfish and um, 
mean and um, unkind is 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 actually the the rarity, not the rare. It's not uncommon, but it's not the default. And so I I, I believe that and that's my experience growing up traveling around the world. I, I, instead of going to college, I went to Asia and I roamed. And I was at I mean I went to dangerous places. I went to places where I was total strangers. I went to places where I could easily have been taken advantage of. And I had almost none of that. I mean, generally, it was just, I had a remarkably um, uplifting experience. And I think it was because I basically was trusting of other people, and therefore they gave me their best back. And so that's another little piece of advice I said, is that get even if you were occasionally uh, ripped off or cheated because you trusted someone, that's a small tax to pay for your otherwise incredible generosity that people will respond to you if you trust them. So so, so overall, yeah, I have gained far more and that even if I was occasionally treated because I trust someone, that I consider it a tax that I paid easily and, 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 and happily pay in exchange for the tremendous amount that I've been given back. So, so, so you know, there's, there's something weird about the universe and the way it's constructed, where the more you give, the more you get. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's just like, that should not work. But let me tell you, it's so reliable and so does it. There's, at the foundation of, this, of the universe is that if you give, you'll be get more back. You know, it's like that the arithmetic does not work. <laughs> the calculation, I don't know what it is, but there's something about that. And so, um, um, and anyways, so, so that's my experience. My experience has throughout life has been to trust people, to be optimistic, to believe that there was something good that was going to come out of this, to try to imagine what was good rather than to focus on the problems. And the life has treated me very well because of that. And I don't know why that works, but it does work. Yeah. Yeah. I believe you. Um, I think that, uh, uh, Rutger also wrote this book called uh, Utopia for Realists. So I think we should really have him on the podcast also because okay. like, that is something that we're thinking about. Like, how do we make um, yeah, positive future scenarios uh, real? But I have to ask you now because we uh, have to have time before before the end. Like, um, one thing that we talk a lot about here is um, the potential of maybe a, like a U catastrophe. So the opposite of a catastrophe. So that's an event where the expected value but the world is like much higher after it has happened. And one thing that we also always comment on about this word is that people like, like it's a, a kind of a catastrophe because people just think of yeah. catastrophe. Uh, and so you've already proven to be a good wordsmith for like protopia and this. So do you have any suggestions for um, alternative names? <laughs> no, I, I had not heard this before, but I, that's fabulous. I love, I love the idea. I mean, I'll think about, I don't know, if there are alternatives to it, but I think your your con the concept is beautiful. I'd never heard that before. I love that. Um, let me think about that. Um, but that is, yeah. I mean, exactly a cascading <laughs> cascading good. Sure. Um, they sometimes call it a virtuous spiral. You've heard that. Um, you know, instead of a vicious spiral, where things are kind of feeding on each other and getting worse and worse, there's virtuous spirals, which basically run the opposite direction and, and the kind of feedback that's kind of like network effects a little bit. So there's virtuous spirals, but um, yeah, this idea of kind of cascading 
goodness. That's a that's a wonderful idea. Um, yeah, um, yeah, and you and the current term is how would you say it's called you you, you catastrophes like in yeah. you like it's hard yours. to say at least yeah some, yeah you, we do need something that's easier to say yeah. Well, we had uh, we actually had like a bounty contest, so we have like a lot of um, proposals. Okay. It's just that I think we need to like agree um, on on. What are some of the other candidates? Um, like efflorescence was the winner of our bounty competition. Um, I think Fantastrophe is one I'm hearing a bunch. Um, David okay. just wrote effervescence in the chat. Yeah, effervescence. Um, so there's a few. I think I've heard Gilder say that. Um, so um, yeah, okay. Well, that, that's a great assignment. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, so then uh, another thing that we always do is, you know, we have um, based, I will ask you what you could, if you could think of a, what a catastrophic event would be, because um, then we'll try to like use this and prompt this to an AI uh, art generator and create an art piece, like trying to actually visualize, a, you know, a positive um, event uh, of the future. So um yeah, do you do you have such such well, a you know, um if if we made contact with another civilization, that would be like that. But who knows if that happens? So we're going to create the equivalent artificially. We're going to make artificial aliens. And so I I think somewhere in there when we get to the point where we actually can develop an artificial alien to the degree that we felt that they were truly alien, that I think would Unlodge and would generate this kind of cascading goodness, but that's kind of already in the air. So let me think. Uh, I mean, another one might be um, there could be something with fusion if it got if energy became really cheap. Um, there, there might be some interesting things that would happen and cascade off of that. If there was some kind of telepathy, you know, the, I just went down the Neuralink to see what they were doing there. Oh, my gosh. That was pretty cool because they were further along than I thought. So there might be something with mind-to-mind -mind communication networked. You know, <laughs> Ramez's trilogy is a little bit scary about that. But nonetheless, there, there there's good things that could cascade off of that. So that would be my first off, two off-the-cuff answers without much thought. But I want to thank you all very much for your attention and an opportunity to kind of uh, rant about my optimism. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.